Well, every week when we gather together like this, we spend time singing. I don't know when the last time was you stopped and considered why it is we actually spend time singing. Have you thought about that lately? I mean, singing is something not only we do when we gather, but it's something that Christians tend to do when Christians get together, whether gathering here, like this morning, or the Christians who gathered earlier today in Nairobi, gathered together to worship, the Christians who gathered together earlier today in Thailand, gathered together to worship, and both of those churches, as they gathered together, the church in Nairobi and the church in Thailand, they sang to the Lord. They lifted up their voices with music in song to God. The same could be said for the Christians who met today in Senegal, or the Christians who met today in Paris, or the Christians who met today in Montreal. They sang to the Lord. Why is it that Christians, when we gather together, we spend time singing, not only in our generation around the world, but throughout the generations? The early church, when they gathered together, they sang songs together, and the church in Augustine's day sang songs together, and the church in Aquinas's day, and Luther's day, and Bonhoeffer's day, and in our day, we sing when we gather together. And my question this morning is why? And part of the answer is because God has instructed that we, as his people, be a singing people. We'd be a people who, when we come together, we celebrate who God is, and we worship who God is, and we remember who God is by singing together about God. But the other half of the answer is that God has not only instructed us to sing, but God has also designed us in such a way that singing is both natural and beneficial. Now, you might be thinking this morning, <laughs> Eric, if you have heard me sing, you would know that singing is not natural to me, right? And that may be true. Maybe those around you this morning are thinking the same thing. It's not natural to that person because they're not that great at singing. But just think about the way music and singing in particular has an impact on our world. For example, in 2020, the music provider Spotify reported 9.2 billion dollars, yes, billion with a B, in revenue. On average, Spotify users, probably many of us in this room, on average, listen to Spotify for 148 minutes, two and a half hours, every single day. In the United States alone, recorded music revenue is over 12 billion dollars. In fact, the Nielsen Music study uh, release, or they, Nielsen Music released a study on American consumer habits around music and found that on average, the average American spends $156 every year on music downloads. $156. Some of you many, much more than that, probably some of you less. In 2021, last year, the global music revenue for the recorded music industry alone amounted to almost $30 billion. So music is important. I mean, just think about the way music expresses our heart's longings and our desires as little else does. 
For example, whether you're feeling down or excited or encouraged or fearful, that will likely have an impact on the kind of music you listen to, whether it's jazz or pop or classical or rap or screamo or country. I mean, think about the way even just the lyrics of songs get stuck into your head. There's something that makes you feel a certain way when you hear lyrics like, we will, we will rock. It's different than when peace like a river, right? Songs can teach us, songs can affect our moods. They can help us get pumped up and relaxed at the same time sometimes. Songs that we sing when we maybe want to get pumped up or there are songs that we sing when we want to unwind after a long day. And this is the reason that the people of God sing, not only because songs teach us certain things and not only because songs unite us together as we sing them, but because songs stir our affections and stir our desires. If you've ever played sports, been in a locker room before a game, you don't usually play Michael Buble over the sound system. It's not really the kind of mood you want to be in before you go down on the football field or the ice rink. Songs have a way of affecting us. They make us feel a certain way. They stir our affections and they stir our desires. And this is one of the reasons that God commands his people be a singing people. Because the songs we sing don't just teach us what is true about God and don't just remind us as we sing to one another about what is true about God, but the songs that we sing help stir us, help move us to remember and to think on and to dwell on and to rejoice in who God actually is and what he has done. They motivate us to continue on in our walk of faith. And this is exactly what Psalm 33 does. Psalm 33 follows Psalm 32, which is not all that insightful, except Psalm 32, as you remember from last week, is a psalm where David recounts to us the wonder and the glory and the freedom of God's forgiving, saving, redeeming work. If you remember, Psalm 32 begins with a blessing for the one whose sin is covered and whose transgression is forgiven and lifted. And then David reminds us in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, about what happens when we seek to cover our sin. And so he calls us in verses 6 through 9 to not be like a horse or a stubborn mule who fails to acknowledge our sin before God, but rather to confess our sin before God, to repent to God, and then he calls us to celebrate in that repentance. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 32. Many of the, are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So Psalm 33 
is a song or a hymn of praise that is a direct result of God's forgiving and saving work that David recounted in Psalm 32. I mean, he's spent Psalm 32 explaining to us the, bl- the blessings of being forgiven, and now he writes Psalm 33 for us to pattern what it looks like to praise God for who he is and what he has done. And he calls us right from verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. It's as though David were calling to us today, celebrate God with your mouth, with your song. Because praise is fitting. Praising God is to be expected from those whom he has saved. This is a clear call to praise. It's a call to worship, not unlike what we did together a little while ago this morning as we lifted up our voices and read Psalm 36 together, the word of God calling the people of God to worship God together. We're reading that, reminding our own hearts of God's word. We're reading that, stirring up those around us, kind of together calling one another to worship God. And this is what David is doing here. Now, you may think to yourself this morning, you know, Eric, I don't really like to sing. Uh, I can't sing. I've been told my whole life that I'm not any good at singing. So why why is it all that important that I sing? Well, my friend, the point this morning is not whether or not you can sing with beautiful melody, with with a beautiful voice. In fact, it is more honoring to the Lord, the one who sings to the Lord with a heart filled with gratitude and joy, even if you can't sing well, even if the notes don't come out right. That is more honoring to the Lord, more glorifying to the Lord, more pleasing to the Lord than the, than the most beautiful voice on earth whose heart is not in love with Jesus. Over and over again, we are called throughout Scripture to lift up our voices and to sing to the Lord. It's the reason why the longest book, the biggest book in all of Scripture is actually a songbook. It's the church's songbook It's a book of psalms and songs that share with us kind of the full spectrum of the human experience, what it looks like to sing to the Lord when we feel blue, or to sing to the Lord when we're hurting, or to sing to the Lord when we're discouraged, or to sing to the Lord when we're worried, or to sing to the Lord when we're rejoicing and happy and grateful. We are to sing to the Lord. And specifically, David tells us here in verse 3, we are to sing to the Lord a new song. And that doesn't necessarily mean every time we get together, we should write new melodies and new lyrics. And our song leaders are to teach us brand new songs each week. In fact, this morning, we sang all three songs we sang, and the song we'll sing at the end of service are songs we have sung before. So are we contradicting the words of verse 3? No. It doesn't require that we write new words or new melodies, but it does mean that we sing to him based on fresh experiences of God's grace. God's mercies are new every morning, which means there are new reasons every day to sing to him. Even if our heart is breaking and our soul seems heavy, we don't have to feel joyful to acknowledge God's goodness and character in our songs. And what can happen so often is as we begin to sing to the Lord, 
he shapes and conforms our desires. He shapes and forms and redirects our feelings. And so, if Psalm 33 then is a psalm that is all about our singing to the Lord, and verses 1 through 3 are David's call to worship, like, come on, y'all, let's sing to the Lord. If you are saved by him, praise befits the upright. Then in verses 4 through the rest of the chapter are really David's explanation for why. It's as though he is saying, if you're a believer, you need to sing to the Lord and sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord based on fresh experiences of God's grace. Let me show you why and how you are to sing to the Lord. And so for our purposes this morning, I've divided these up into three categories. We praise the Lord first because his word always holds true. We praise the Lord second because his plans are always accomplished. And third, we praise the Lord because he watches over his people. If you didn't get all that, don't worry. You'll see that on the screen as we make our way through. First, we as the people of God are to praise God because his word always holds true. It did then 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. It does today. Look at verse 4. For, or because, the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Notice the emphasis in these verses on the words of the Lord. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Verse 9, for he spoke, and it came to be. And the word of the Lord is central here in Psalm 33. And look what the word of the Lord has done. In verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright, meaning it always holds true. It is trustworthy. We can stake our eternal soul to the word of God because the word of God will never, ever fail. And our words are not like that. Even amid our best intentions, our words are not like that promise to take our kids. Maybe today you promise to take your kids to the park. But we can't account for the rain, the weather. You can't account for a flat tire. Or we say, you know, I'm going to get the project done by the weekend, but we can't foresee the computer crash or the illness that comes to us in the middle of the week. I mean, even with our best of intentions, our words do not always hold true, but not the Lord. His words will not fail. His words are true, which is why, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we don't live on bread alone. We don't live on the food we eat alone. We, we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's why, according to Psalm 119, verse 81, we hope in God's word. We put the weight of our lives and rest it firmly on what God has said. 
We put our confident trust in what God has said. And it's why Proverbs 30 verse 5 reveals to us that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And so we praise the Lord because his word always, always, always holds true. It was through the word of the Lord that God created the world. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So if you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with Christianity for the last 2,000 years, that statement that God has created everything by his word is not, is not an outlandish statement. I mean, that's just orthodox Christian faith. But I want to pause for a minute here so that we might be amazed once again. Friends, God spoke, and it was. Think about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and God called the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the waters from the expanse that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Hey, who else can do that? I can't do that. You can't do that. You can't even get Siri to listen to you half the time. And God said, and it happened. And it came into being. I love the way the ESV study Bible notes put it. Each time God spoke, what he commanded produced its effect. We praise the Lord because his word always holds true. But that's not all. Notice in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. That sounds like a lot of what we've been talking about. God said and it came to be. But I think there's an additional nuance here. Verse 7 and really 7 through 9 aren't just about creating They're also about sustaining. In biblical times, water was the place of the unknown. It was a place the ancients feared, especially the Jews who were essentially landlocked. So when they thought about the sea for the Jews in that day, when they thought about the sea, they didn't think about Royal Caribbean or snorkeling with dolphins or you know, deep sea fishing, they thought of the unknown sea monsters that were believed to have lived there. They thought about sea storms and shipwrecks and uncertainty. For them, the sea was the great untamed wild. 
D.A. Carson, a theologian, writes, Left unchecked and untamed, water can be a mighty force for devastation. Therefore, the Old Testament repeatedly asserts Yahweh's sovereignty over these parts of creation. Specifically, as here, that he controls them, marks off their boundaries, puts them into jars and storehouses. Thus, they are tamed. It's as though the creator God of all things looks down, David writes, and says, oh yeah, the the greatest untamed wild that you can imagine? Yeah, I, I I put that up in jars like your grandmother does with preserves. That's how powerful I am. I not only create, but I sustain. And God created through his powerful word and John in the New Testament is so careful to tell us that that powerful word is Jesus. It is through Jesus that God the Father made all things. And it is through Jesus, the author of Hebrews, reminds us that God sustains all things. Listen to how the book of Hebrews opens. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, we praise the Lord because his words always hold true. But that's not the only theme here in Psalm 33. Because secondly, David calls us to praise the Lord because his plans are always accomplished. Praise the Lord because his plans are always accomplished. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We praise the Lord because his plans are always accomplished. Now think for a minute, what percentage of your plans are actually accomplished? 30%, 40 50 maybe? Some of you maybe 60%? Because maybe you're like seven years old and You haven't had a lot enough time yet for your plans to not be accomplished. We can make our plans, we can study, we can design what we want to happen in our lives and in our world, but we have so little control about actually accomplishing those plans. But not the Lord. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So the God who made the world rules over the world. And because he rules over all things, his plans are always accomplished. I mean, think about that. Because we we don't have anything to compare that to except God. Because no one's plans are always accomplished. Even the federal government. (laughs) Their plans are not always accomplished. Maybe rarely accomplished, we could say, perhaps. 
But there is no power anywhere that can stop God. And therefore, because his plans are always accomplished and no one can stop God, no one can thwart his plans, the safest place to be, the greatest blessing available is to be one of God's own people. Or to use the psalmist's words in verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So God deserves all the praise and all the worship of everyone and everything, everything that lives should rightly stand in awe of him for all the reasons that we've already looked at this morning. But in the middle of all of this, there is one group of people that God has chosen, one group of people that he has called to be his own. It began all the way back in Genesis. In fact, you might remember in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abram. And his name will soon be changed to Abraham. But God picks him and God calls him to be his own that God might build a nation of people through Abram and that through the offspring to come from Abram, from that nation, the world would be blessed. And now, about 1,300 years later, David writes. And God has, by this time, built Abram into a nation of people, the Israelites, and God has blessed them. And the biggest blessing the Israelites have is God himself, the God whose presence lives among them in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, the God who blesses them with rain for their crops as he has promised, the God who sees them as we saw last week and defends them and helps them, the God they worship and repent to as they regularly bring their sacrifices him. And none of this blessing was because of Israel's greatness alone. In fact, God himself reminds them of that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I love this. God is just like, let me put you in your place for a minute. Just remember, it was not, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands to a thousand generations. So God calls to Abram and calls him out to be his own people, to bless him, to make a nation of people from him, promises that that Abraham will be a blessing and the primary blessing will come through an offspring, singular, that God would bring about or bring from the people of Abram, the, the Israelites. And long after even David wrote these words in Psalm 33, an offspring, a particular offspring from Abram's family, would be born named Jesus. And he would live without sin. And he would willingly suffer and die as a substitute for all those who by faith turn from sin and trust in him. 
Trust in him as our only means by which we can be reconciled back to our creator. As the only means by which we can be forgiven of our sin. As our only hope in life and death. Friend, are you trusting in Jesus Christ this morning for your salvation? And if not, what are you trusting in? Your word will not come true all the time. Your plans will not always be accomplished. But God's will. And God's plans do always hold true. So if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation this morning, turn to him, trust in him. For your sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he was without sin. So that through Jesus and his death on the cross in your place, you might become the righteousness of God. Your sin would be credited to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness would be credited to you by faith. As you trust in Jesus as your only hope in life and death, would you trust in him this morning? Maybe you want someone to talk to or to pray with, or you have questions this morning. We have some folks who will be down front after service who would love to talk to you. There are people sitting around you right now who would love to talk to you after service about that. In fact, we've been praying even this morning that God would open up the eyes of those who are not trusting in Jesus this morning, that you would see the glory of God and you would see the beautiful plan of God in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you would turn and trust in him this morning. And here's here's what's amazing. Because the plans of the Lord are always accomplished, we praise him. But we praise him not as outsiders to his plan. Because all who trust in Jesus, all who are forgiven, are adopted into the family of God. We're adopted into the people of God. So if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus by faith, you are a part of the family of God. When I was growing up, we used to sing this song every, every Sunday. We had meet and greet right in the middle of service. Everyone stand up, turn around, go up and down the aisle, meet and greet and talk. Some of you are smiling. You're like, yeah, our church did that too. Every week we would sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain. Cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. That's your reality. That's my reality. That's who we are this morning. We are joint heirs with Jesus, grafted into the family of God. Not through our own work, not through our own doing, but because of God's glorious forgiveness and grace in Jesus. The borders that defined the people of God in the Old Testament, which was the nation of Israel, have now been greatly expanded in the New Testament through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the people of God aren't just believing Israelites, believing Jews, The people of God are all who are in right relationship with God through the saving work of Jesus Christ and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul would, would say it like this, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so my friends, brothers and sisters in the faith, when the psalmist in verse 12 refers to the people whom he has chosen as his heritage in light of the New Testament, in light of the New Covenant, that is us, that's all of us who by faith trust in Jesus Christ today. We are a part of the family of God. Which leads us to our final point this morning that the psalmist makes for us. We praise the Lord because his word always holds true. We praise the Lord because his plans are always accomplished. And we praise the Lord, third, because he watches over his people. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. If the Lord sees, the Lord knows us. He sees and knows your trials right now. He knows the deepest longings of your heart in this very moment. He knows your innermost hurt, your most secretive pain. Just because God is great does not mean he is also not near. And even here, the psalmist has just been recounting to us, taking us kind of to the heights of the glory of God and the wonder of God's power in creating and sustaining the world. But now he draws us down, calling us to praise and to sing to the Lord because the same God who created all things and sustains all things also is near, who sees and who rescues and cares for his own. And so the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord. He reminds us who God is and what God has done. He reminds us to put our confidence in the Lord, to give to the Lord our worship and praise. He calls to us to sing together. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. For our hope, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Here, the psalmist holding on to trusting in who God is and what God has promised and what God has done and what God has accomplished. He says, even, even as we wait on you, we hope in you. Even as we wait for your promises 
all your promises to be fulfilled. Even as we as a church today wait for the Son of God to return and to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness, we do what as we wait, as we hope on the Lord? We sing. We praise. We worship. Not only because it teaches us, not only because it unites us, but because it shapes us. The ESV Study Bible notes say it like this, each member of the faithful who sings this and takes to heart the greatness and wonder of God is enabled more and more to rest his soul on the Lord, confident that God's plans will succeed in the earth. So even this morning, if, if you don't feel confident in the Lord, you don't feel joy in the Lord, The Bible would say that rather than waiting to feel joy in the Lord and then singing, the way to find joy in the Lord is to sing. Sometimes that singing is a lament. Sometimes that singing is a cry. Sometimes that singing is a celebration. But he has created us to be a singing people. So we're going to do that. We're going to close by singing together. Zach and Cassie are going to come. They're going to lead us in a song together. Again, whether you can sing beautifully or in your mind you can't, it'll be a beautiful sound in the hearing of the Lord this morning. So I'm going to pray. Would you stand with me?